You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on December 30th, 2022. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello there. We had some technical difficulties, but um, here we are for the last science and technology Q&A for kids of the of 2022. Um, and I see there are a variety of questions that have come in. This may have to be a little bit short today because, uh, uh, well, we started late and I probably have to finish early. Um, <clears throat> but let me see. Gosh. Uh, all kinds of questions that are interesting here. Um, all right, let's talk about this one from Murray. Might be relevant to at least some places today. What causes snow? Why doesn't rain just turn into ice? Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, so water can, can be in multiple different phases. It can be uh, a liquid, as standard water is, where there are molecules, water molecules, H2O molecules, that are just bouncing around, jiggling against each other, and uh, uh, not held in a rigid array, but are still sort of in contact with each other. In ice, the water molecules are arranged in a kind of rigid array. And there are different forms of ice. There are different crystal structures for ice. In the most common crystal structure for ice is a hexagonal structure, where essentially the water molecules are arranged in a little sort of hexagonal grid. But there are many forms of ice that are known. There are, I don't know how many phases now, maybe 15 different types of ice that are known in which uh, different pressures, for example, in glaciers where the ice is being crushed at very high pressure, the, the crystal structure can change. Instead of, the, instead of the, the water molecules being arranged in a hexagonal array, they can be arranged in some kind of other array. I don't know what all of them are, but they're probably some cubic arrays and other such things where, where the, the, the whole structure of the solid is different. So there are many different uh, versions of the solid crystal structure of, of, uh, of ice. So um, when if you have a, a bunch of liquid water and you cool it down and it's not it's at normal atmospheric pressure, then the typical thing that happens is it will form the most common kind of ice, which is a hexagonal crystal structure. And how does it actually form that ice? Well, what's happening is the molecules are jiggling around and that jiggling is a uh, consequence of the fact that the temperature of the ice, the, the temperature, what is temperature? Temperature is ultimately the average energy of molecules in a material. So, in in um, and that's that's really what what the temperature is. As you, the the average energy which determines the average speed of the molecules in a material. Um, as you reduce the temperature, you reduce the average speed. You reduce the average energy, and what's happening is. These molecules have forces of attraction between them that are caused by a variety of both quantum mechanical and electrical processes. But the forces of attraction between the molecules, well, what typically happens is uh, the, the most common type of uh, force law for molecules is a thing called the Leonard-Jones potential, which um, at, uh, at large distances, large radii R between the molecules is roughly one over R to the power six. 
And so it's an attractive potential. So it's uh, when the molecules are, you know, if they're very far away, there isn't any force between them. As they get closer, there's an attractive force between them. And then there's a one over R to the 12th component, which comes in at very short distances. And at short distances, the molecules repel each other. So basically, if the molecules are very far away from each other, they just don't know that they're, they don't, they, they don't notice each other. As they get closer, there's a force of attraction. And then when they get too close, there's a force of repulsion and they, the molecules get, get to, to sort of bounce off. And so what's happening in a solid is, well, when, when a solid is formed, usually there's enough kinetic energy, enough temperature-induced motion of molecules that the molecules are sort of continually running in and out of the sort of potential well associated with attraction between molecules. And that means that the molecules can sort of go around freely. As the temperature goes down, the molecules end up getting pulled in closer and get locked in place in a crystal structure. So that's kind of how the process of solidification happens is the temperature goes down, the molecules no longer get to sort of jiggle around at random. Instead, this force law causes them to get locked in place and they end up in the crystal. The actual process by which a a, a kind of a, a random arrangement of molecules in liquid water forms into an, a, an organized crystal is actually pretty complicated and is still not completely understood. And for example, there might be pieces of the crystal that are forming and they're making a perfect array of, of molecules, but then there's a there's a defect. There's a there's a piece of the of the, the liquid water that was a, arranged differently, and it's it's kind of hard to get this whole crystal to be sort of. Uh, be uniformly organized across a large volume of water. And it's the same thing with magnetic materials. When you get uh, um, ferromagnetism, uh, something like a bar magnet is formed by having not, uh, it's, it's formed by not only having the iron atoms be arranged in a crystal, but also the, the spin directions, the magnetic directions associated with the iron atoms being arranged in an organized way. But what happens when you cool just a, a hot block of iron is you'll get these different domains where all of the magnetism goes in, you know, let's say the, the direction at 30 degrees, and then another one, it'll be a direction 70 degrees, and you'll get these different domains that form. And it's a whole separate issue about how you can do annealing and so on to gradually cool the thing down to try and get the domains to merge and end up with something where it's all magnetized in the same direction. Same kind of story where you get to, in order to get sort of a perfect ice crystal. Okay, so one of the issues is when, when you form ice from liquid water, you end up with uh, the sort of, the, the question is, as the energy gets taken out of, of the water, uh, how exactly does that happen? And where, you know, how, how does the, how does the, this arrangement of the of the molecules into the solid form occur? So the basic point is that uh, you look at the surface of of uh, of the of the growing ice crystal and you ask, what is it like? So if it's going to make a perfect crystal, ordinary crystal, and it's the hexagonal phase of ice, you expect that all the molecules are lined up in such a way that you're going to get a hexagon as the result. But in fact, the way that uh, water tends to freeze, in many situations, 
is one where you won't get that perfect hexagon forming. To form that hexagon, effectively what's got to happen is atoms have got to be attached or molecules have got to be attached on the outside of the hexagon sort of one layer at a time in a very kind of slow, organized way. But if you attach molecules more quickly, it doesn't work like that. Instead, what will happen is every time a molecule, which was you know, going around in the, in the liquid, or maybe it was even in the gas phase, that molecule was running around quickly, and then the molecule somehow gets locked onto the surface of the growing crystal. As it gets locked onto the surface of the growing crystal, something has to happen to the kinetic energy that the molecule had. And that kinetic energy gets transferred to uh, basically heat in the, in the crystal to which it gets attached. And so what will happen is it's the so-called latent heat of uh, a latent heat of fusion, it's usually called. Um, that is the, the, the heat that's released when something goes from, let's say, liquid phase or gas phase to solid phase. Um, it's it's the, the heat that it, that the, the, the energy that it did have running around in liquid phase or, or gas phase gets, has to go somewhere and it goes to heating up the solid onto which it got attached. So when that happens is molecule gets attached to a piece of the solid, it locally heats up that piece of solid. That local heating up of the solid makes it more difficult for another uh, molecule to attach right nearby. This is a kind of a growth inhibition phenomenon that when the crystal is growing somewhere, it inhibits the growth of the crystal nearby. Okay, so what consequences does it have? So what happens is you get this instability where molecules grow in a particular place and they sort of grow out an arm in that place. But right around that arm, it really is a separated arm because right around the arm, there's heat being released and another, and, and you don't get things uh, sort of being added to the surface of the crystal right around there. Instead, you have to go a certain distance away to get to the position where another arm, where, where sort of the heat has dissipated and another arm can form. Okay, why am I telling you all this? Well, because this is how snowflakes form. Snowflakes, uh, are not do not form as as kind of regular just sort of growing hexagonal plates, which is what the the sort of the the ordinary perfect uh, uh, ice crystal would form like. Instead, because they form more quickly, they end up forming little arms, and there's this growth inhibition phenomenon. Things heat up when the arm gets uh, starts growing out, and so what happens is uh, you might start with a seed of the of the ice crystal. That actually, the, the 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 to to begin the process of forming a solid is actually not easy, um, and it often, in the case of uh, something like um, uh, uh, even raindrops or snowflakes, when you start forming, but okay. So how does how does rain form? Rain comes from the uh, the water vapor is in the air as a gas, and as it cools, it ends up turning into a liquid. Um, it can also cool directly from the vapor phase to a solid. That's the most common thing that happens. It's not common that you get first the formation of a liquid, and then that that solidifies. That's usually what makes things like hail and so on. Is is the you make the liquid first, then you cool it, and you make a solid, and you get these big blobs. What happens when you form things like snow is you go straight from the gas phase to, and, and there's something that. Uh, doesn't happen at normal atmospheric pressure, but at at the when you're uh, at a higher altitude, you will end up getting um, the actually that's no no you you can get it at ordinary pressure with with uh, with different humidity levels in the air, 
um, you can get going directly from vapor phase to solid phase. But when that happens, instead of it forming what's called an epitaxial crystal, an ordinary faceted crystal, you form this um, uh, you form this dendritic crystal, this kind of tree-like crystal where there are separate arms growing out. And so a snowflake is this kind of dendritic crystal in which the, the way that ice gets added is through these arms. And what typically happens is the thing will form a bunch of arms. The arms will form arms. You get kind of this tree-like branching. Then the, the branched trees will kind of end up actually linking up. They, they grow out. And then one, one branch, the branches of the branches grow into each other. And so what actually happens in the, in the formation of a snowflake is it starts from this little hexagonal seed, grows a bunch of arms. For a while, it's very tree-like and very fluffy. Then the arms grow back together again, and you again get a bigger hexagonal shape, albeit with some holes in it. And then it starts growing arms again and so on. And depending on the exact stage at which the snowflake happens to fall in your hand or whatever, the snowflake will have grown a different number of, of, of stages of tree to hexagon, tree to hexagon type form. And uh, not very many times, usually, for typical snowflakes. But a snowflake, a uh, a snowflake is the result of this growth of um, uh, of of these separate arms that come about because of this growth inhibition phenomenon in the in the addition of material to a growing solid crystal. So that's that's the way that works. And and people often make these claims like there are no two snowflakes are alike. This claim is not correct. The fact is that. If you look at the stages through which a snowflake goes, they look rather different as it goes from tree-like to hexagonal to tree-like again and so on. And if you stop a snowflake at different stages in its growth, they'll look it'll look very different from a, a, a snowflake between different stages. And so you might say, oh my gosh, all these snowflakes are different. But really, it's mostly they just got stopped at a different stage of growth. And when snowflakes, when you have a collection of snowflakes that sort of fall on a piece of fabric or something, you might collect them on, the, the, the way the snowflakes have fallen through the air, they're air currents. And the snowflakes will have, because of turbulence in the air, or at least air currents, different snowflakes that land on more or less the same place on your piece of fabric will have had different paths by which they fall. And those different on those different paths, they will have ended up with um, uh, a different kind of experience of temperature and humidity and so on. And so they will have grown at a different rate and all that. And that means that they, they will end up in sort of different stages of snowflake growth, even though they land nearby. And that's kind of why it seems like every snowflake is different because yes, snowflakes that landed nearby had somewhat different histories. And because of the actual growth process being this thing that has goes through these very different stages, it, one gets the impression that all these snowflakes are different, but they're not. So that was a long story of of um, uh, um, the uh, um, somebody notices that yes, I, I do know something about this area of physics. I have studied this in some detail. Yes, I, it, it, actually, snowflake growth is a is a good example of where simple rules for growth can lead to sort of complicated behavior and. Uh, you can be very sort of obsessed with questions about the exact rate at which the arm of a snowflake grows. Um, the the thing that is sort of the the bigger question is roughly to explain why snowflakes have the sort of uh, uh, tree like appearance that they do. And that, again, that's what makes snow fluffy, and is the fact that there's these snowflakes don't pack. If they were just pure hexagons, they would all pack in 
in a very compact way. But because they've got all these arms, the arms don't, uh, there's sort of empty space between the snowflakes and that's what makes snow fluffy. And for example, when avalanches occur, they typically occur because the snow has different, uh, the, the snow that is not fluffy like that, that does not have those dendritic pieces will tend to be much more slippery. And the transition between those different forms of snow leads to all kinds of things like avalanches and so on. So that's a little bit of story about um, where, where snow comes from. Let's see. Uh, oh, there's a question here from um, Lolly asking, why is the density of solid water uh, lower than liquid water? It's basically, why does ice float? Um, the, uh, the minimum, that's a complicated question to which I do not fully know the answer. Water is a surprisingly complicated material. And in liquid water, for example, you well, again, okay, in, in water vapor, kind of every molecule is for itself. The molecules are just going around and they, they travel for quite a while. They travel for, I don't know, a, a, a millionth of a meter or something, just uh, sort of freely moving from place A to place B, so to speak. And until they hit another molecule, they kind of don't know there's any, any, any other water vapor there. So in other words, in the gas phase, the, the, you know, each molecule is kind of separately moving around and except for the fact that they're colliding with each other every so often. In the liquid phase, the molecules never really escape from the force fields of other molecules. So there's never a case where a molecule is just sort of freely moving without any forces from other molecules. That's kind of a defining feature of liquids is there's sort of always this, this effect of other molecules that is to be felt. But the effect is not so strong as it is in a solid where it locks everything in to be in this very rigid array. Um, and in the case of water, water is a, has a large, um, it acts like it has a large electric dipole moment. It's a, it's a, um, uh, the water molecule has, you know, the oxygen, and then it has the two hydrogens hanging off at what is it, 108 degrees, I think, is the is the angle of the bonds. Um, but it's a, it's it's like this great big thing that has uh, a, a kind of electrical. Uh, it, it has some. Um, it's like having a positive and negative charge, um, like a bar magnet, except that it's an electrical version of a bar magnet. And so all these water molecules are these polar molecules that have this um, this sort of electric electric bar magnet-like structure. And that causes the water molecules to interact in very complicated ways. And in particular, might, while you might think that every water molecule is kind of moving around randomly in liquid water, it's not actually true. There are these very complicated clusters of molecules that form and these very complicated kind of uh, uh, sort of, uh, implicit structures that are forming and being destroyed and forming in liquid water. So for example, one thing that I think is, 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 is commonly the case. In a crystal, there are certain forms of crystal structure you can get. You can get a hexagonal crystal, you can get a cubic crystal, you can get these other ways of arranging molecules in a sort of rigid array in three-dimensional space. One form you can't get is icosahedra. Icosahedra don't tessellate space. Cubes tessellate space. You can just have a bunch of cubes, a bunch of bricks. You can build them up in three dimensions. You can fill in all the space you've got. It's, it's all filled in with cubes. Same thing is true with uh, hexagonal prisms. Same thing is true with um, 
oh my gosh, what are they? They are, uh, ooh, what are those things called? Uh, well, sn snub rhombo um, cuboctahedrons. That's another type of type of solid that uh, can just pack in in three dimensional space. So there are some solids that can pack in a three dimensional space. An icosahedron, a twenty faced platonic solid, cannot. But what happens is in liquids, in a first approximation, you get things like sort of icosahedral arrangements of molecules that never can pack in precisely like they do in an ordinary crystal, but are just sort of jiggling around. But roughly, if you looked at uh, where all those molecules are, they're roughly forming an icosahedron, and then another set of roughly forming an I another icosahedron, and so on. But water has a very complicated set of these kinds of, of sort of uh, uh, partial structures that form um, in the liquid water. Not, not fully understood yet. The fact that water expands when it freezes, otherwise known as the density of ice is smaller than the density of liquid water at zero degrees centigrade. Um, that is, uh, uh, you know, that's a thing that has many, many, many consequences. I mean, it's why when you freeze something, you freeze some biological thing or a piece of fruit or something like this. When you freeze it, the water crystals that for the ice crystals that form when you freeze it will tend to blow up the biological cells in that, in that uh, piece of fruit or whatever, because the ice is bigger than the water was when it was in the same place, so to speak. And this is the reason when we talk about cryonics and, you know, um, freeze a person, so to speak, you know, pause, uh, go on pause for, for, you know, for a few years or whatever else. The reason we can't do that easily is that we, as biological organisms, are full of water, um, and that's sort of a large part of our mass is actually water. Um, but that water, if you cool us down below the freezing point of water, all that water will expand as it forms ice crystals, and all of our cells will then get exploded by the, by the water uh, expanding when it freezes. And so this is one of the big challenges of, of cryonics, is how do you avoid that? How do you avoid things being um, destroyed by the formation of ice crystals? Turns out water, actually, there is a state of water that is smaller than, of solid water, that is smaller than liquid water. It's the so-called vitrified phase, which is a kind of glossy phase, where instead of the, the crystal being, instead of it being a very regular crystal, ice crystal, the water molecules are sort of packed in randomly. This is what, when you have glass, for example, the, the silicon dioxide in glass is, um, the, the, the molecules are kind of packed in randomly rather than forming a crystal in a typical piece of pane of glass or something like this. So I think water at minus 44 degrees centigrade, I think, uh, undergoes vitrification. But the problem is that if you're cooling some water down, you get to zero degrees centigrade, and at zero degrees centigrade, it forms ice crystals. If you could jump it down to minus 44 degrees, you could get it to something that will be smaller than liquid water and would have a higher density than liquid water, and you would be able to then have it not explode cells and, and do other bad things. So there's sort of a big challenge there. For example, can you find some kind of material that is sort of an additive to the water that will cause it to just not form ice as it goes below zero degrees centigrade and gets as far as minus 44 degrees, at which point it will do this, do this, make this glassy material. The, the concept of you know, various antifreeze substances tends to be prevent the water from freezing, prevent the ice crystals from forming. 
and you put additives into the water that just prevent it, prevent the water molecules from kind of being able to arrange themselves to make an ice crystal. Um, let's see. The, um, the question here uh, from David, is there any other molecule that also expands when it, when it freezes? I, not a common one, I believe. I believe water is pretty unique in that, in that respect. I mean, water is obviously a very simple molecule, you know, two hydrogens, one oxygen. It doesn't get much simpler than that. Um, and I think, and it has very special properties because it's, you know, those elements are, are low on the periodic table and so on. Uh, let's see. Eggy is asking, uh, why can you do ice skating or skiing? Um, it's, uh, I personally am no good at either of those things. Um, I think uh, um, I happen to know one of my kids went skiing today. So they know how to ski. I do not. At least two of my kids know how to ski. Maybe three, actually. Um, they, uh, um, but I am, I am not able to do that. But I think uh, that I, I don't know to what extent there is a, a layer of liquid water that forms from the friction of the from the heat that's generated by friction with 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 skis and and uh, and snow or, or I, I don't know to what extent that is the is the cause of the slipperiness so to speak because uh, because generally you know having a liquid in between is a good way to make things slide more easily that's what lubrication does when you put oil into machinery what's happening is that you've got two solid surfaces so so to explain solid surfaces. If you have two solid surfaces and you put them next to each other, let's say it's two pieces of aluminum or something, you put them next to each other, why do they not just form one big solid surface? Well, the answer is that in normal, in the atmosphere, there's normally a coating of, of uh, things that aren't just the bulk metal. There's usually oxide and things like that on the surface that prevents those two pieces of solid from just sort of binding together. In a vacuum, they can, in fact, you can take two pieces of solid and they just lock together. And they just, their, their atoms from one solid sort of uh, attract the atoms from the other solid. And they just, if the surface is flat enough, they'll just, um, just sort of uh, weld together like that. Um, the other thing that happens is actual solid surfaces are not flat. They have all sorts of sort of mountain, mountainous structure if you look down at an atomic scale. And so one of the things that happens is friction between solid surfaces. And friction has this funny law that was discovered in the 1600s, actually, that the amount of frictional force is proportional to how hard you're pressing the things down onto each other. So the friction force is proportional to the normal force, the, the amount of force that's going in the direction down, uh, that's pushing the two objects together, um, multiplied by this thing called the coefficient of friction. So F equals mu times N is the usual sort of physics formula. And the, the fact that that's the formula, that the frictional force is just proportional to the force with which you push these two objects together, that's been a very hard to derive formula. In 400 years, we still don't know why that formula is really right. Um, and in fact, uh, there are materials where there are corrections to that formula, where the frictional force isn't just proportional to the, to the normal force. It's very much analogous to in a liquid the analog of friction in a liquid is viscosity, the extent to which when you push a liquid, does it actually flow? 
And so there are all kinds of materials that are, what are they called? Fixotropic fluids, I think, um, non-Newtonian fluids, uh, uh, since old Isaac Newton was the one who, who originally gave the formulas for viscosity and so on. They're, they're fluids that don't satisfy that standard viscosity formula. I think there are kinds of paint and glue and things like this that don't flow in the way that you would expect based on the, you know, the, 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 the force doesn't make it flow at a certain rate. And it's the same thing with friction. There are materials that don't have, although it's less common, there are materials that don't have the standard formulas for friction. I mean, clearly, if you have, um, uh, what's it called? Um, Velcro, for example. If you've got two Velcro, two pieces of Velcro with their little hooks in them that are like gecko feet or whatever, like mic microscopic pieces of gecko feet, you've got these two pieces of Velcro and you start putting them next to each other and then they, you know, you start trying to, you know, move them, well, the little feet will catch hold and there's hugely more force that you need to be able to move them than you would expect by a force equals uh, coefficient of friction times normal force. So there are certainly materials where that doesn't work. But the whole question of why it normally does work is still quite mysterious. And probably what's happening is, as you push on these materials, those mountainscapes that exist on the two materials, they're just sort of, the mountains are getting squashed. And the more you push, the more mountains get squashed and the larger the actual area of material where it's just one material right up next to the other is uh, is happening. And so that's why there's more frictional force associated with that case. So, uh, but, but this whole question about what leads to friction is complicated. And in general, having this layer of liquid, for example, those molecules in the liquid uh, can are sort of free to move around, and so they they kind of well quite literally lubricate the 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 two solids and let them slide relative to each other, rather than saying oh there's a molecule here in one solid and it's going to see the molecule here in this other solid and they're going to be sort of latching onto each other. Um, Okay, Lolly is, is saying that ice melts at the contact of your blade, so there's a small layer, this is for ice skating, so there's a small layer of liquid water due to friction, and hence it skates. Okay, was what I kind of thought was going on, but I wasn't absolutely sure. Um, let's see. Uh, well, so one point about, about speeding up on, there's a comment from Eggy here about speeding up on ice uh, while skating, so an increase in the friction must have happened. Um, the uh, uh, the thing is that formula for friction doesn't say anything about the speed that the materials are um, uh, um, uh, are moving at. It's 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 a formula that has a lot that isn't in it. It just says the friction force is proportional to the normal force. Nothing else. It's not proportional to the square of the normal force. It's not doesn't depend on the speed that things are moving at. Now it has to be said that um, the uh, uh, there is an effect in friction that the static coefficient of friction is larger than the dynamic coefficient of friction. So, for example, here we're going to do the lab demo, which isn't going to work here. You know, if I take a, an object and I put my two fingers there and I start moving the fingers closer to each other, I'll get a stick, a slip, a stick, a slip. And what's happening there is that the the Static coefficient of friction, the coefficient of friction that is associated with the materials being at uh, not moving relative to each other, is somewhat larger. So that's why the thing 
doesn't it, it, you have to push harder to get it to start moving once it's moving it moves more easily until you get to the point when it when it's when it's a lever type thing like that until you get to the point where the force um get, gets so that it, you stop being able to move associated with the, the the dynamic coefficient of friction and you again stick again and i think the um uh, this stick-slip phenomenon of the, the static coefficient of friction less than the dynamic coefficient of friction, that is a pretty important phenomenon in the world because it's, for example, what leads to earthquakes. As you have forces between tectonic plates, for example, the, you, you, know, you, you might have a, a plate that is trying to slide relative to another plate. but And as it tries to slide, it's being held back by the static coefficient of friction. But as soon as it overcomes that, it'll slip for quite a distance because then while it's slipping, it's using the dynamic coefficient of friction. So that's kind of the sort of a very basic reason that earthquakes happen is because of that phenomenon. So let's see, all kinds of comments here about um, uh, uh, ice skating, why it works. Memes is commenting that gecko feet exhibit Casimir-like effects. Wowee. Um, that's interesting. Okay, let's not let's not dive into the um, uh, deep lizard there um, and explain what that's about because I, I don't know the. Um, uh, well, I, I'm guessing that what's oh yeah I, I know what's probably happening here. Um, okay, maybe we, maybe we shouldn't dive too deep into this, but I'll just make a comment that I talked about the forces between molecules and um, uh, the fact that there's this attractive force between molecules. That's due to a uh, these are usually called van der Waals forces. And those forces are ultimately of quantum mechanical origin. And they come about because you've got a molecule, it's just sitting there, it's got these electrons in it, it's got the nucleus in it. What happens is there are always fluctuations in the kind of electron cloud in, a in, a, in an atom and or molecule. And those fluctuations in the electron cloud cause the molecule to have a small electric dipole moment. They have a small kind of electrical force, uh, source of electrical force. And but that happens sort of as a as a matter of random quantum fluctuations. And that electric dipole moment induces an electric dipole moment in another molecule, and electric dipoles attract each other. And that's the cause the cause of this uh, van der Waals force is the is the vacuum fluctuations, the the quantum fluctuations in the charge Associated with one molecule that induce fluctuations in another molecule that have a that produce an electromagnetic attraction force. So there's a, a similar phenomenon that happens just between sort of two metal plates or something. There's these vacuum fluctuations that lead to a force of attraction. And I'm guessing that in the gecko feet case, there are uh, it's sort of a uh, there's a there's a kind of a smooth transition between the story of van der Waals forces for molecules and this thing called the Casimir effect in vacuum fluctuations between solid objects, um, and those are they're really the, sort of the same phenomenon. And I suspect somewhere in the middle of that thing is a gecko foot, but I don't know exactly how it works. Um, the uh, 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 Lolly is suggesting using a. Uh, a whiteboard or something, you know, a, a blackboard for explaining things. I'm, I'm, um, you see, this is what I get for not having been a professor for, I was very briefly a, a professor, but that was a long time ago. That was, ooh, how long ago? 34 years ago. Um, so, you know, you guys, 
get um, something I don't think professors do very much, which is pure off the cuff uh, answering of things, but you don't get the organized, I'm gonna write things on a blackboard. Um, and uh, I haven't used a blackboard in a long time. I, I was never, a, I don't think I, 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 the very few times I used it, um, the chalk dust definitely got to me a bit. Um, okay, we should wrap up fairly soon here, but I can try and answer maybe one related question. Uh, well, here's a simple one from RBS. Is air a molecule? What is air? That one is fairly easy. Uh, air is, is two kinds of molecules, nitrogen molecules and oxygen molecules, mostly. It's about 78, 80% nitrogen. Uh, nitrogen molecule is a pair of nitrogen atoms and about 20% oxygen, pair of oxygen atoms. Um, and that's, that's most of what, what air is. The next components are water vapor, H2O, depending on where you are. If you're in the middle of a fog or something, there's more water vapor um, than otherwise. And then the next most common thing is carbon dioxide. And uh, there's some um, sort of, it's the, the big story of carbon dioxide is how much carbon dioxide is there in the Earth's atmosphere. You know, I have this little, little device that um, I got at some point that's been sitting on my desk for ages that measures the... Um, uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in parts per million, I guess, and it usually has numbers like 400 and things on it. So I think that's some, uh, let's see, it's, it's like 0.4%, I think, of the uh, of, of air is carbon dioxide, roughly. But it's kind of interesting to see if you take that, that carbon dioxide measuring device into a small space where there are a bunch of people, you know, we breathe in air and we... Uh, you know, we use a bunch of the oxygen in the air and we breathe out a bunch of carbon dioxide. And you can kind of see if you're in a, in a room with people and um, they're all breathing out carbon dioxide and the, the air isn't circulating much in the room, you'll see the carbon dioxide level will rise. I think it, uh, I don't know, I, I haven't been in, in, in such sort of stuffy places very much, um, at least not with my carbon dioxide detector. Um, but I, I'm, I think it raises to, rises to like 800 parts per million, 1,000 parts per million, this kind of thing. Um, and, and so you can see this, you know, even on pretty short timescales and pretty pretty uh, uh, sort of different situations, you'll see significantly more carbon dioxide in the air locally. The big question is how much carbon dioxide is in the air, in the air globally, and that's been gradually going up over the last few decades associated with uh, basically burning things in industrial processes and transportation and all, all those kinds of things. Um, that's a whole separate issue, what effect that will have on the Earth's atmosphere and climate and what one can do to kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, plants, for example, um, uh, they uh, pull in carbon dioxide and they produce oxygen. And so, you know, your average tree or something, you know, all the carbon dioxide I'll produce in my life is uh, from breathing things out will be perfectly well absorbed by one tree. Um, and uh, at least I think that's right. Um, and uh, the, um, um, and that, um, uh, uh, and, and so then there's a question of sort of how do you, how do you sort of collect the carbon, carbon and carbon dioxide in plants and so on? I mean, right now the, the world has about two trillion trees. And, uh, you know, people have these projects like the trillion, you know, make put another trillion trees on the earth. The earth used to have many more trees. 
I mean, I think it's the biggest tree period was the Carboniferous period when the plants were first on land. And that was what led to, you know, this, this burst of, of plant life and so on, which is what gave us coal and other things um, now in geological strata. Uh, okay, the, the last last comment here, the, there's a question, can you measure the absorption of carbon dioxide by plants with this device? I'm, I'm sure you can. I, I don't have any plants sitting here in my in my office, um, I uh, perhaps I should, but I don't. Um, it's, uh, uh, I think, um, um, no doubt, I, I don't have any immediate place to go. Um, uh, you know, I don't have a, a um, uh, you know, many people have a, you know, have a, a greenhouse room in their house or something and, and uh, or a very plant, uh, uh, you know, plant concentrated room. I, I don't happen to have that, so I haven't been able to, do that experiment, but yes, I think one should be able to measure this, and I and I would assume you can measure the overnight uh, absorption uh, by plants um, if uh, with that device. I, a good idea. I mean, it's a it is computer connected, so uh, because well, like uh, sort of I I like collecting data on all kinds of things, and so collecting data on the carbon dioxide level of, level of my desk has been. Uh, just another random piece of data that I haven't I haven't actually looked at that data at all. I have no idea what it looks like. Maybe I can see when I'm hard at work because I'm producing more carbon dioxide or something at that time. Anyway, it'd be a fun thing to do. Um, all right. The um, I think we should wrap up here. Um, so uh, thanks all for joining me. And uh, Happy New Year. And uh, look forward to uh, being able to be with you on another live stream in 2023. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.